I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. In August, the Democratic and Republican parties held their conventions mostly virtually for the first time in history due to the corona crisis. This week on We the People, we look to past conventions throughout history. We'll explore the constitutional positions the parties have taken, from the founding to the Civil War era and beyond. We'll dive into 19th century party platforms to consider the evolution of the party's constitutional positions. And to help educate us, I'm joined by two of America's leading experts on the history of political parties. John Gehring is professor of government at the University of Texas at Austin, where he teaches courses on methodology and comparative politics. He's the author of many books, including Party Ideologies in America, 1828 to 1996. John, it is great to have you on the show. Great to be here. And Michael F. Holt is the Langborn M. William Professor of American History Emeritus at the University of Virginia. He is the author of six books, including the award-winning The Rise and Fall of the American Whig Party and American Political Development from the Age of Jackson to the Age of Lincoln. Michael, thank you so much for joining. I'm pleased to be here. John, you have argued in your important book, Party Ideologies in America, that party platforms reliably predict the ideologies of parties. Let's begin at the founding. Of course, the founders didn't anticipate the rise of political parties, but by the election of 1800, we had two major parties, the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans. What were the constitutional positions of the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans in 1800? You're right that the American parties were the first mass parties. And by 1800, there was a, a very competitive election and parties were, were forced to uh, put themselves out there, as it were, in a very public way. And the tradition of party platforms uh, came to be established. And really the identities of the parties, even though these were loose groupings that some people would maybe prefer to call factions rather than parties, they assembled you know, every four years to nominate a presidential candidate and to adopt the platform. But for the most part, they were grounded in state, uh, state organizations. They were really an assembly of, of state parties. So as for what they stood for, I think there are a, a good deal, there's a good deal of continuity over the, over the course of the 19th century with the National Republicans and then the Whigs and then the Republicans standing for a more mercantilist, statist, pro-industrial or manufacturing perspective. They had roots in, in the Protestant uh, constituencies. And as the, you know, this is very early, but uh, several decades later, they came to oppose what they called slave labor or the slave power, the slave power. And they were also very strong supporters of tariffs. And many of these themes were, were foreshadowed in, in work by Hamilton in the, uh, in the late 18th century. The Democrats, by, by contrast, or the Democrat Republicans, as they were initially called, were much more suspicious of government. They were, if you want to put a label on it, laissez-faire, anti-statist. Uh, they tended to support the interests of agriculture as opposed to industry. They had, as the, as the century wore on, a growing Catholic constituency. They defended states' rights, of course, and I'm anticipating what comes later in the, in the century anti-tariff, anti-monopoly, and uh, worried about issues of religious freedom. 
Um, so I, just on the, on the issue of constitutionality, I would say that much of what the parties put forward was put forth in the garb of constitutional rhetoric. It was seen, these were seen as constitutional issues, and there was constant reference to the U.S. Constitution. I think it, it was played a, a more prominent role in the, in the 19th century than it, than it does in, in the 20th century. Thank you for that, and thank you for highlighting the centrality of the Constitution to what we view today as political debates. Michael, take us back to the founding. John's identified the broad split between the more pro-national party federalists and the more states' rights Democratic Republicans, but what additional context can you give us about the constitutional positions of those two parties around 1800? Well, I think the federalists uh, by 1800, even though... Uh, Hamilton was no longer in government, uh, uh, really echoed Hamilton's positions in the Federalist Papers about an, you know, an energetic executive branch. And they saw in the Necessary and Proper Clause uh, plenty of leeway to charter a national bank, to uh, levy a direct tax in 1798 that uh, annoyed a lot of people, particularly in the South, and slaves were uh, included on it. And the Jeffersonians um, were, uh, as uh, John said, laissez-faire. They actually said that government is best, which governs least. Uh, and uh, uh, they thought if any government did something, the government closest to the people uh, was the government that should do it. Uh, local governments before state governments, state governments before the, uh, the federal government. Uh, their position, of course, would change uh, once they got in power after uh, 1801, uh, because foreign policy would force them, uh, uh, foreign relations would force them uh, into taking more dramatic uh, actions. And by the, uh, the Madison administration, they were chartering another national bank. Uh, but at 1800, uh, the differences over constitutional interpretation were pretty stark. Uh, uh, Jeffersonians uh, were very strict in what they thought the national government should do. Uh, the uh, Federalists uh, uh, had a broader interpretation of the powers uh, under uh, uh, Article I uh, of the national government. Let's turn next to the rise and fall of the Whig Party, which is the title of uh, Michael's 1999 book. John, how did the Whigs evolve out of the Federalists, and what were their positions, and how did they rise and fall and evolve into the Republicans? Well, uh, I'm dismayed you would ask me that question with Michael at the other end. <laughs> chime in in a moment. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, I, I do see, as, as you can tell from, from my, my uh, earlier comment, uh, a good deal of continuity between the Federalists and the Whigs and the Republicans, um, particularly in their support for tariffs and uh, what w one might call a nationalist, uh, a sort of a list-style uh, nationalist uh, economic policy. Um, mercantilist is another word one, one could apply. And um, in that respect, the Whigs, you know, and Henry, Henry Clay, I think, was, was the major force in Congress, the major kind of intellectual uh, uh, in, in the party. They had a series of uh, generals as presidential uh, candidates and, and presidents, um, and most of the policymaking was done in Congress. Um, and he had this system he called the American system, um, which 
uh, you know, saw a growing manufacturing um, uh, 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 force in the United States, one that would come to rival England's, and a crucial part of that was uh, tariffs to um, shut out uh, competition from abroad. Protection is, is the word that, that they would use for, for American industry. Um, there were, you know, other other issues brewing. The Whigs tried as hard as they could to avoid the slavery issue, and eventually it killed them. But I'm sure Michael will uh, will address that. Well, Michael, you are indeed the world expert on the rise and fall of the Whig Party. So tell us about it. I'm looking at the 1844 Whig Party platform, which says resolve the principles may be summed up as comprising a well-regulated currency, a tariff for revenue to help defray the necessary expenses of government. This We the People listeners is on the website of the American Presidency Project, which lists all party platforms starting in 1840. And tell us about the constitutional positions of the Whigs, Michael, and after they fell, how did they evolve into the Republicans? Gee, I wanted to answer that. <laughs> because, uh, I think it's a mistake to say they were a direct link uh, to the Federalist Party. Uh, they, they grew out of uh, uh, Madisonian Republicans uh, uh, like Henry Clay. Uh, some Federalists uh, joined them. Uh, uh, but as a constitutional position, uh, which is not reflected in the 1844 platform, but was absolutely central to the founding uh, of the Whig Party, uh, they took very seriously the notion of separation of powers between the executive and congressional branches. And they thought that uh, Andrew Jackson had overreached uh, by uh, ruling by executive fiat. I mean, the, the removal of the deposits from the Bank of the United States, uh, the specie circular, those were all executive actions because he couldn't get them through Congress. Uh, and uh, Whigs, I think, uh, legitimately thought uh, this was a threat to the Republican, the small r Republican basis of the government. And uh, so uh, this constitutional idea of uh, the executive being an agent of uh, uh, the legislative branch rather than a dictator to the executive branch was very important uh, to them. The party evolved uh, uh, really in response to economic conditions and the uh, a, a, a panic and, and subsequent depression that lasted a roughly from 1837 to 1844, when they added a lot of the economic programs uh, that John uh, mentioned, uh, uh, calling for another national bank, uh, uh, protective tariffs, uh, federal support for uh, uh, what were called internal improvements, clearing rivers and harbors, uh, uh, building roads uh, and canals. Uh, uh, and if they couldn't get the, or uh, they also wanted to redistribute, uh, uh, if the federal government couldn't do it, to distribute, uh, redistribute the uh, income from federal land sales to the states. So states. So they believed uh, that uh, the, the American economy was underdeveloped and that government should have a role uh, in, de uh, in developing it. Uh, whereas the Democrats, remained, uh, I think, until almost the New Deal uh, proponents of the negative state. They, uh, they opposed uh, using governments uh, to do these things because they argued that any 
uh, governmental action in the economy um, uh, created uh, inequality. It helped some people at the expense of others. Uh, and their cry was protecting equal rights and uh, equal interests. Uh, it, it's, uh, I, I note that you have a copy of the 1844 Whig platform. Uh, uh, notably, the, the Whigs in only two of the elections, the five elections where they ran presidential candidates, did have a national platform. Uh, they didn't have one in 1840 or 48 uh, or 36 when they had three candidates. Uh, it was only uh, in 44 and 52. Uh, and there was some dis uh, uh, dissent by the, the 52 platform uh, because it endorsed uh, or seemed to endorse the finality of the Compromise of 1850. Uh, and this annoyed uh, 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 a lot of Northerners. Uh, Horace Greeley, the leading uh, Whig newspaper editor in the country, uh, spoke of the 1852 uh, national platform uh, that uh, we spit on it uh, uh, because it uh, seemed that Northern Whigs opposed the finality of the Compromise of 1850 uh, because of the uh, Fugitive Slave Act. So there were great, ten whereas and by 1852, uh, Southern Democrats uh, re repudiated the candidate, Winfield Scott, because he didn't seem uh, he had refused to endorse uh, or, or, uh, the Compromise of 1850 prior uh, to the convention. Um, so the, the, the Whig Party was dividing uh, over uh, slavery. Uh, but it seems to me that what, what, what did in the Whig Party were uh, a number of events uh, and the political response to events between 1852 and 1856, uh, with the emergence of a, uh, a, a really uh, aggressive temperance or prohibition campaign in a number of states, uh, and the emergence of uh, uh, anti-Catholicism and anti-immigrant sentiment uh, as really powerful forces uh, as manifested in a know-nothing uh, party which simply sapped the voting strength of, of the Whig Party uh, in both sections of the country, uh, so that it was very weak uh, uh, by the, the next election. And while it would endorse uh, Millard Fillmore, who'd inherited the presidency when Zachary Taylor died and signed the Compromise of 1850, uh, Fillmore uh, was really the Know Nothing Party's candidate first. Uh, and the Whigs uh, backed him second. So the, the party was really shattered uh, by 1856, and which is one of the most pivotal elections in American history uh, because uh, uh, the new Republican Party emerged uh, as, as the main challenger to the Democrats in that election. Thank you for all that. Fascinating context for helping us understand that it was the Madisonian Republicans who were the core predecessors of the Whigs, that separation of powers was a key concern, and that the Democrats' commitment to limited government was connected to one to equal rights. John, maybe a beat on the Democrats before we really dig into the constitutional position of the Republicans. I have on the American Presidency Project's uh, site the 1840 Democratic Party platform, which begins resolved that the federal government is one of limited powers derived solely from the Constitution 
and the grants of power shown therein ought to be strictly construed by all the departments and agents of the government. And it goes on to have a series of constitutional positions, including the Constitution does not confer upon the general government the power to commence and carry on a general system of internal improvements or to assume the debts of the states and so forth. So your great book on the parties begins in 1828. Is this 1840 platform representative of the positions of the Democrats starting in 1828? Then tell us more about the constitutional positions of the Democrats in that uh, antebellum period. Right, right. Yeah. Well, I I think it is. And I want to pick up what I I think is maybe an important constitutional issue. Um, You know, the the Democrats' opposition to uh, what we might call development policies, infrastructure, and and so forth was... uh, more about the federal government doing these things uh, than it was opposition to these to these policies per se. So there was uh, there's a whole uh, kind of a, a school of historiography that looks at development um, programs that were initiated by state governments, and the states, of course, in the 19th century did a lot more than the federal government in general. And so uh, what they did had had a lot more. It, it just mattered more. Uh, and uh, we need to understand that at the state level, the U.S. doesn't, in many ways, is much more activist than European governments. Um, I mean, take the construction of the of the Erie Canal. You know, other projects like this that were supported by uh, state governments, uh, the early railroads, and, and so forth. Um, it was really the states that that were the main actors, and some of those states were were run by Democrats. Uh, I don't know too much of the details. Michael can probably weigh in on this. Um, but what the what the Democrats were concerned about was the role of the federal government, and uh, that harkens back to their their view of constitutional power, which had which it was really almost you might even say a, a shadow of the uh, of the anti federalist uh, position that. The federal government had a, a reduced role, uh, and uh, it needed to be kept in check. And that was the the principal thing that they were worried about. And Jackson's initiative to kill the bank was uh, very much uh, in in that vein of of uh, re- restraining the overweening power uh, of of the federal government. Um, so so yeah, I'll, I'll, although this this uh, ideology sort of came together uh, slowly, it is fairly consistent. And um, it represents the views of uh, agriculturalists, I guess, and those in the West who um, didn't see that they needed a lot from the federal government. Now, I guess you could, you know, you could debate that, and you could say, well, the, the railroad system really was uh, an initiative of the federal government, and the West certainly benefited uh, from it. But uh, that's how. That's how they saw it, and because American agricultural products were, you know, the cheapest of the world, commodities we could sell, uh, and we certainly didn't need to. There was no one trying to sell commodities to the United States, so they had no need for tariffs. Uh, that was strictly for the for manufacturing, which was seen as a as a Whig and and then later Republican constituency. Michael, we have the Democratic Party platform, which I've just read from 1840. You have observe that Democrats have been less united than Republicans about their constitutional positions throughout American political history. Tell us what's going on in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s in the antebellum period, and how disagreement over constitutional principles began to define the way the Democrats formed their platforms. It, it seems to me that Democrats, more than their opposition, had trouble 
juggling sectional wings of the party. Uh, in the Anna period, it was the North, uh, North and South uh, uh, slave states in the free states. Uh, and in the post-Civil War period, it was Western and Eastern uh, wings of the party that, that, that fought bitterly at conventions uh, over monetary policy. Uh, greenbacks or free silver and free uh, gold, uh, uh, that sort of uh, thing. Uh, the Republicans didn't have those uh, uh, splits. Uh, but let me hone in on a, on a different split because I, I, uh, it wasn't on your list, but I, the last book I published, and believe me, the book I'm writing, I was on the 1860 election. Uh, and I delved into the Democratic Convention, which was, uh, of course, really split uh, uh, in half. Uh, and it seems to me that it, it split over a constitutional question or over a, uh, a constitutional interpretation uh, far more than I realized, that, and I'd been studying the antebellum period for a number of years. Uh, the real split within the Democratic Party uh, wasn't over slavery and, and slavery extension so much as it was over whether to accept the Dred Scott decision or not. Uh, and uh, Buchanan and Southern Democrats were saying it's the final word that that uh, decision recognizes a national, a federal property right in slavery. Uh, and most Northern Democrats refused to accept that, let alone Republicans. Uh, uh, who, who rejected uh, uh, the legitimacy of the uh, Dred Scott decision uh, at, start, uh, at the start. But the, uh, uh, the fight over the platform uh, in, in uh, the, the Democratic conventions was, and uh, that convention, uh, and then again, I, I wrote another book about the 1876 presidential election and the fight over the, the monetary uh, platform in that election, uh, they also all came back to uh, Democrats can't win without New York. Uh, and uh, the New York Democrats have different views on almost all issues than other uh, Democrats. And so they, uh, they tended to split more, I think, uh, than their opponents. We the people listeners, please check out Michael's book about the 1860 election. And indeed, Michael, I'm looking at the 1860 Democratic platform. And the second clause says, inasmuch as a difference of opinion exists in the Democratic Party as to the nature and extent of powers of a territorial legislature and as to the powers and duties of Congress under the Constitution of the United States over the institution of slavery within the territories, resolve that the Democratic Party will abide by the decision of the Supreme Court of the United States upon these questions of constitutional law. Absolutely fascinating. John, it's time for the first Republican Party platform in 1856 at a convention where William Howard Taft's father was a member. The nominee is John Fremont, and the platform begins resolved that the maintenance of the principles promulgated in the Declaration of Independence and embodied in the federal constitution are essential to the preservation of our Republican institutions and that the federal constitution, the rights of the states, and the union of the states must and shall be preserved. Tell us about that crucially important Republican Party platform of 1856 and what the constitutional positions of the Republican Party were at its founding. 
Well, uh, I mean, what you've just read articulates the Republican Party's uh, electoral calculus, that it would be more uh, popular or more palatable, let's say, to defend the union uh, than to uh, fight for freedom <laughs> for slaves, uh, to state the obvious. And that was, uh, you know, that was their position. That was Lincoln's position, protecting the Constitution and the union from sedition, uh, you know, and, and secession. Um, it's, uh, it, it was, so, so the, I guess this illustrates the point that, that I made earlier that political rhetoric was, was couched in constitutional terms it, to an extent that is difficult for us, I think, in the, in the 21st century to, to imagine. Along similar lines, I'd like to ask you both now about the crucially important question of race and the Constitution. In John's book, Party Ideologies in America, 1828 to 1996, he traces two major periods of Whig Republican ideology and of Democratic ideology. And just to summarize his thesis, for the Whig Republicans, he says, from 1828 to 1924, the Whig Republicans stressed order, nationalism, morality, anti-populism, and the role of government at the federal level. From 1928 to 1992, he says, Republican appeals shifted from social order and elitism to a neoliberal agenda and a populism of rights. And then during a similar but not identical period, the Democrats experienced an ideological shift. John says that from 1828 to 1892, uh, the Jeffersonian era prevailed, and there was a fundamental emphasis on the party's appeal uh, in regards to civil society, anti-statism, pre-industrial agrarianism, the preservation of liberty, and the perpetuation of racism. And by the time that William Jennings Bryan came to the forefront, John argues the Democrats began to appeal to populism and class conflict, and they contested the power of the monopolists. Fascinating division, and it's striking that neither party shifted because of race. The Republicans by 1864 had committed themselves to abolishing slavery in America, but race in John's account was not, in fact, the defining factor that led to the shift in the constitutional positions of the two major parties. So, Michael, tell us your thoughts about the role of race and the Constitution. Uh, certainly the dialogue uh, up through uh, the Civil War uh, was much more about slavery than about blacks or Indians. I mean, I, um, uh, it, well, nationally. Uh, but uh, uh, race entered in uh, the, uh, uh, the free soil argument uh, of some people by uh, uh, people were blatantly saying that we want to preserve the Western territories for whites only. Uh, we want to keep blacks out. Uh, that is, they play in a, a uh, the anti-slavery, the Free Soil Party played openly on racial uh, prejudices. Uh, yet, on the other hand, uh, we know, and Eric Foner pointed this out years ago, uh, that at the state level, uh, when there were uh, attempts to revise state constitutions uh, to end discrimination against blacks in northern states like Ohio or Illinois uh, or Indiana, uh, it was, uh, or New York, uh, it would be Republicans who were pushing for those uh, 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 amendments to state constitutions and uh, Democrats who opposed them. Uh, 
Uh, but certainly uh, by, uh, to go back to the national front, by the time uh, after the 1868 election, uh, uh, Grant wins, but it's clear that the, the Democrats had a majority of uh, the, the white voters, uh, even though Grant won, uh, and Republicans and, and right in the spring of 69 start pushing for the, uh, the 15th Amendment. Uh, then there's much more open talk among Republicans uh, uh, about uh, uh, the, you know, the, the justice, the moral uh, 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 justice of, of giving black uh, people the vote or of uh, negatively prohibiting discrimination based on race or previous condition of servitude. Uh, I was struck uh, uh, when, uh, well, years ago when I was uh, researching the book on the 1876 election, uh, uh, reading uh, uh, the Congressional Globe and the short session of Congress that went from December 1874 to March of 1875, I was interested in a question of how Colorado became a state. Uh, but Oliver Morton, uh, or Benjamin Butler of all people, uh, made these impassioned speeches on the House of Representatives about uh, walking over black bodies uh, in Virginia campaigns in 1864 uh, and becoming absolutely committed to uh, uh, equal rights. So Republicans did openly talk about uh, uh, race uh, then. John, I summarized your important thesis. Tell us more about your thoughts about the role of race and the Constitution and why each of the two parties shifted when they did. Well, um, yeah, uh, so <laughs> race was uh, not going to win uh, any votes for the uh, Whigs and Republicans because, you know, up until the uh, really the, the mid-20th century, uh, African-Americans were concentrated in the South and they were disenfranchised with the, with the exception of the brief period of Reconstruction. And once Reconstruction ends, the Jim Crow laws come into effect and, and uh, poof, there are no more black voters uh, anywhere. And uh, because uh, the American public at large was not favorably disposed towards uh, black Americans. I mean, even those who uh, were, I, I mean, they, they may have opposed slavery, but uh, they, they were not uh, seeing these people as, as, uh, as equals. I think we can, we can say that. And so, um, you know, there's no votes to be had. Uh, this is a, this is a vote losing issue. And that's why uh, Democrats were much more likely to, to raise it than Republicans. And that's why Lincoln campaigned as, on the platform of, of unionism. It was a unionist party. It wasn't the uh, Free the Slaves Party. And so this, you know, this uh, dynamic endures until, uh, really until the 1960s. And although the, the Democratic Party begins to embrace civil rights, you know, that's, uh, I guess, uh, Hubert Humphrey's uh, famous speech at the 1948 uh, Democratic Convention is, is the first uh, maybe important step in, in that direction. But um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a very long period of, of uh, shunting that issue aside. Well, Michael, we're now in the post-Civil War period, 
and I wonder if you could highlight some of the conventions that might help us understand the evolving positions of the Republicans and Democrats. One that comes to mind for me is 1876. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit more about that important election, where, of course, uh, Samuel Tilden won the popular vote and Rutherford B. Hayes won the electoral vote only after a hotly contested dispute about who won in the state of Florida that was decided by a special electoral commission. Uh, here's a quotation from the Democratic Party platform in 1876. It reaffirms our faith in the permanence of the federal union, our devotion to the Constitution of the United States with its amendments universally accepted as a final settlement of the controversies that engendered civil war and record our steadfast confidence in the perpetuity of Republican self-government. And here's a quotation from the Republican platform of 1876. It begins, the United States of America as a nation, not a league, by the combined working of the national and state governments under their respective constitution, the rights of every citizen are secured at home and abroad, and the Commonwealth are promoted. So, Michael, tell us more about the election of 1876, and then take us up through the evolving positions of the Democrats and the Republicans in the 20th century. Uh, well, thank you for asking me about that election. <laughs> I, mean, I know more about that than, say, 1868. <laughs> uh, uh, well, uh, first, uh, uh, if you read a little further on in the Republican platform, uh, you would uh, uh, see uh, them uh, say, announce, and the Republicans did this in every single platform through 1880, so far as I know, uh, announcing we still need a Republican Party. Uh, the nation still needs a Republican Party. Uh, and uh, despite everything that's, that's happened. And I think this is because uh, people still thought the idea of a party that was almost solely based in one section uh, was, it was illegitimate. And, and the Republicans kept every four years reaffirming uh, that their party uh, was still uh, necessary. Uh, uh, to go back to the Democratic platform, most of which uh, uh, if, if you read into it, uh, every platform begins with reform is needed in this, uh, reform is needed in that, and the Democrats are presenting themselves, uh, they're attacking the corruption of the Grant administration and, uh, as the party of reform. Uh, and it's very interesting, it was one of the, uh, uh, that platform was written out in advance by a New York newspaper editor named Manton Marble, who took it uh, to the convention uh, in St. Louis. Uh, there was a big platform fight over it uh, because of where they where to stand on the money question and, and the resumption of specie payments. Uh, 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 but uh, the, uh, the the prelude uh, that you read is, of course, uh, is is enunciating what was called by Democrats the new departure. Uh, we're not going to fight Reconstruction any longer. We're going to accept the Reconstruction amendments. Uh, that battle is over. We want to turn to different questions. Uh, whereas uh, uh, the Republicans are going to say, uh, if you read on in their platform, uh, that uh, uh, no, uh, uh, the, the threat to the union is not uh, gone. Uh, and they're going to wave the bloody shirt that if the Democrats win, uh, all the Confederates are going to come back uh, into power. Uh, and uh, if they win, uh, this is a plank of the Republican platform that uh, uh, if 
uh, uh, the Democrats win, it's going to be Union soldiers to the rear and Confederate soldiers to the front. Uh, and there was a reason for this. I don't, uh, Democrats got control of the House of Representatives in December of 1875. They won big in the 1874 elections. They fired all the clerks who were all wounded Union Army soldiers uh, and replaced them with wounded Confederate soldiers in all the positions. I mean, what a bonehead uh, play <laughs> that was. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, so we're Republicans were still waving the bloody shirt. And, you know, the 1876 election had the single highest turnout of any presidential election in American history. Uh, it's hard to uh, believe that with, you know, uh, 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 such lively guys as uh, Rutherford B. Hayes and, and Sam Tilden as, uh, as the candidates. Uh, but 81.8% but uh, of the eligible electorate, and, uh, and of course would have been higher had, had Blacks been allowed to vote uh, in, in Southern states rather than uh, uh, killed the way they were. Uh, but in terms of a constitutional question, uh, that came up, uh, the plank that got uh, the biggest cheer at the Republican convention in, uh, in 1876 uh, was the 14th plank uh, of the platform. Uh, and it had to do with uh, getting a constitutional amendment to prohibit public aid to Catholic schools. Uh, and uh, uh, James G. Blaine, uh, uh, in his annual message of 1875, Grant had said, the greatest threat to America now uh, is the Catholic threat to the public school system. We need a constitutional amendment uh, to uh, uh, prohibit states from giving aid to public schools. Uh, James G. Blaine, seeking the Republican nomination, introduced uh, such an amendment. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, he then uh, uh, was uh, in the, uh, uh, he went into the Senate from, uh, uh, well, not, not yet, uh, but he was, he was still in the House, but the Republicans were in a, a minority in the House. The Democrats actually passed an amendment like that uh, with a clause, with a two-thirds vote because Republicans didn't uh, vote on it. Um, but added a clause that Congress shall have no power to enforce this with additional legislation. Uh, uh, just crippling uh, the amendment, Republicans refused to vote for it and it died in the, in the Senate. But this question of amending the Constitution uh, uh, to meet a so-called Catholic threat to the public schools, as I said, they demanded that, that plank at the convention be read four times. People were just going wild with enthusiasm. Uh, so, uh, uh, promised uh, 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 constitutional amendments had uh, a role there. Of course, uh, uh, the, uh, the Republicans in their platform, I don't, uh, I don't have it in front of me, if you might, uh, but they defended their record, of course, and proudly in passing the 13th Amendment and the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment uh, to the Constitution. Uh, as as necessary and proper. Uh, from uh, really the entire 19th century uh, up to uh, Wilson's term, uh, Democrats opposed 
using uh, the federal government uh, to solve social problems uh, or to intervene in the economy um, for various reasons, whereas Republicans had been the statist uh, party who wanted to use government actively uh, to solve social and economic problems or uh, certainly to promote economic development of the nation. Uh, but uh, uh, beginning with Wilson's term, but emphatically with the New Deal, uh, the positions of the parties changed uh, so that the Democrats became the status party, uh, the, the, the party of positive governmental activism, uh, whereas the uh, Republicans uh, were the party that resisted uh, federal governmental activism. John, I summarized very quickly your important thesis about how the Democrats and Republicans switched positions in the 20th century. You say the shift began for the Republicans in 1928 and for the Democrats in 1896. What more can you say, broadly speaking, about the constitutional positions of the Republican and Democratic parties throughout the 20th century? And then perhaps you could give us your closing thoughts on what you'd like to leave We the People listeners with about the importance of political parties and the Constitution. So with, with the Republicans, I, I think the transition is not, um, in some ways, is, is simpler to summarize, even though um, the point of transition may not be so clearly marked in, in time. But, uh, you know, from the 10s to the 20s and into the 30s, you see a transformation from a party whose principal concerns are maintaining social order, um, and uh, building, of course, preserving the union and internal improvements and high tariffs and, and the sort of uh, industrial uh, uh, base that they developed. Um, and so in a sense, it, they turned from a status party to an anti-status party. And in my view, this uh, transformation occurs before the Great Depression, although, of course, the, uh, the New Deal and the Democrats, you know, this vast expansion of, of governmental powers that the Democrats preside over um, really um, solidifies the shift in, in Republican ideology, uh, where they now become the, the opponents of the overweening power of the federal government, uh, exactly uh, flipping uh, uh, their, their position from the 19th and, and early 20th centuries. And I think we see that, uh, uh, you know, all the way up to the uh, the era of Reagan. Uh, it, it remains an open question to what extent Trump will, um, you know, signals an enduring change in, in Republican uh, ideology. I, I suppose we can we can get to that later on. But but throughout that that era of the 20th, early 21st century, the Republican Party is the anti-statist party, the one that, you know, campaigns against government and supposedly for individual rights and uh, wants to decentralize power from Washington to the states and localities. And, uh, uh, and that's, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very clear ideology. And, and I think, uh, uh, you know, Herbert Hoover was, was one of the first to, to really articulate it. Um, but it was, it was happening throughout the 20s. With the Democrats, um, they go in the other direction uh, from being the, the anti-statist party, the party of limited government in the 19th century, around, uh, well, I think, you know, with the, with the nomination of, of uh, William Jennings Bryan in 1896, they become a party characterized by populism. Um, and, and, of course, 
uh, at in the 1890s, the Populist Party uh, was a, a very important challenge to to the uh, Democrats, in particular in the South, and um, <clears throat> they have a, a much more radical program for reformation. Um, and uh, ultimately, they are, uh, uh, you know, the the party goes defunct, and that's that's a whole story unto itself. But the Democrats adopt many of those. Many that that sort of attitude of uh, crusade or reform and um, a changing attitude toward government, in which uh, government is asked to do things, you know, and and the Democratic Party, although both the Democrats and the Republicans are progressives in different ways, and, and certainly the, the the shifting coalitions and the shifting policy positions of the parties in the early 20th century is rather confusing. Um, but over time, the Democratic Party comes to be the party of government, and that transition begins uh, in 1896. Uh, in, eight, in 1948, there's another transition uh, that I see in the Democratic Party where they begin to embrace a more universalist position, one which accommodates civil rights and other minority groups um, and uh, I think addresses the the, the needs uh, and and desires of women, and later on, uh, 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 gays, lesbians, and and uh, other other folks uh, who define themselves by their sexuality. This is a, a vast kind of opening up of space that the Democratic Party occupies in the uh, in the post-war era. So that's a sorry if it's a very thumbnail view, but of a of a of a lot of a lot of details. Um, I, I don't know if I have a, a sort of a grand synthesis or a takeaway from this discussion, but I do think it, you know, in in thinking about how American political discourse compares with discourse in other countries, I think it does have. A very strong constitutional flavor. I think that, although, as I've been saying, the Constitution was more of a presence, much more of a presence in the 19th century than it than it became in the late 20th and and uh, century and today, it is still uh, a, a living presence, you might say, uh, in this country to a greater extent than other countries I'm familiar with. I, I think it's a, it's a unifying force, which could be important at the present juncture. Uh, you, you never, <laughs> at least I never encounter people saying we have to scrap the Constitution and start again. Uh, that, that seems to be, so, so that's uh, a, a point of, of agreement. And uh, maybe, that, maybe that offers us some, some hope uh, in, in a hyper-partisan age. This episode was produced and engineered by Jackie McDermott and engineered by Kevin Kilburn. Research was provided by Jake LaFons and Lana Ulrich. Homework of the week, We the People Friends, just this week, the NCC began launching our live online free classes on the Constitution three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays. Uh, my colleague, Curry Sautner, and I are teaching the Constitution for middle, high school, and college students, and we're joined by our great NCC colleagues, Tom Donnelly and Nick Mosvick. If your kids are learning at home, we hope you'll tune in, and for adult learners, I hope you'll be as inspired by the classes as we are. 
It's so meaningful to be able to teach the Constitution during these challenging times. Check out constitutioncenter.org, learn, and there's a complete schedule. Um, and uh, thank you for spreading the word, sharing the links with teachers and students you know in your communities. And thank you, of course, for doing what you do every week when you listen to the We the People, which is educating yourself about the U.S. Constitution. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts. Thanks to those of you last week who accepted my uh, request to recommend the show. Those ratings that you left make a big difference, and please keep them up. It helps us spread the word. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Thanks to several of you who've written to me this week and said you actually joined and became members. Uh, I hope that'll inspire others to do the same. Go to constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership and become a member at any level. We, I just want you to signal your engagement with our great community of learners or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.